This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hello, this is WTF Bach. This is Evan Shinners. You can call me either. You can call me either. The goal of this podcast is to get you to hear Bach the way I hear Bach, to guide your ears, push your mind into sonic areas which will help you make sense of this infinitely beautiful and infinitely refined music. After listening to this podcast, you may find yourself newly prepared to understand more of one of the most complicated and highest forms of music, nay, even highest forms of art ever created. Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, Friday. Well, thanks for tuning in, folks. If you listened to the previous episode about the sixth contrapuntist, you may recall we were comparing harpsichordists and their approach to the dotted rhythm. It seems that unanimously they were all double-dotting this theme, all of them except for Robert Hill. So I told you I would email him, and I emailed him, and one email turned into a few emails, and finally the emails turned into a two-hour chat. So... This is a guest episode, and today's guest is none other than harpsichordist Robert Hill. Now, here's my introduction. Robert Hill studied with Gustav Leonhardt in the 70s, and then in the 80s, he completed a thesis at Harvard University working with none other than the Bach scholar Christoph Wolf, doing his research on the Andreas Bach book and the Muller manuscript. Now, whenever you enter the world of Bach, you usually come to two names, one in the direction of performance and one in the direction of musicology. And those two names are Gustav Leonhardt and Christoph Wolff. And Robert Hill studied with both of them. For almost 20 years, he was professor of historical keyboard instruments and performance practice in chamber music at the Hochschule for Music in Freiburg, Germany. And now... He's the chair of Baroque Music Performance in Boulder, Colorado at CU. Now, for me and for many others, his recordings of the Artifugue are the gold standard. I find his style completely inimitable. Within a contrapuntal texture, each voice has its freedom, and this, this is just remarkable. On an instrument when you cannot bring out a voice by playing it louder, where all the notes are played at a fixed volume, somehow you can hear every single voice in Hill's playing. They retain their sense of individuality. It's like listening to four speeches at the same time and understanding the meaning of all of them. I want to preface the feeling I got talking to Robert Hill by using a sort of metaphor. If music were a forest, and there were many different paths you could go down, Speaking to musicians in different genres or those who play different instruments is like being two distinct travelers. We meet somewhere, discuss this infinite forest, maybe we've traveled common ground, but inevitably we go our separate ways. We have these different paths. But Robert Hill, this is a guy who has gone way, way, way down that path, that very path that I have been walking and wish to walk on for the majority of my life. And so seeing him in this forest is like, whoa, you you have to tell me what's up there. What what did you see? What's it like ahead? I was talking to a guy who's been contemplating a type of sound longer than I've been alive. So this conversation gets very, well, specific. We're talking shop. Perhaps there's an inside joke about a fugue here and there that doesn't leave you laughing, but I think what everyone can get from my conversation with Mr. Hill are many things. The way he imagines the setting in depth before forming any opinion about Bach. He seems careful to consider a statement without taking into account the time and culture from where that statement came. 
His knowledge about Bach is one that has been carefully built, source by source, taking the entire historical scene into context. And for me, this is the mark of a good Bachian. When people jump to conclusions regarding Bach or his music, it's liable to put forth something that you yourself want to put forth. Also, think about the way that he thinks about sound and time. He mentions how the 18th century keyboardist was probably more concerned with making the instrument speak rather than sing. Now, if that there isn't enough to blow your mind, try practicing as he does with a metronome at 15 beats per minute or 12 beats per minute. He also mentions pulling a world of sound out of an imagined world. He has to imagine music which is not in the score and pull it out into the audible world. Now, this is something that only the highest level of musician can do, to hear while looking at one or two lines of music, other lines of music, but not only hear them, execute them. Now, in the following episode, I'm really going to harp on that idea because it's one which has been fascinating me of late. But suffice it to say, most people, even perhaps many professional musicians, never really get to operate on that level of imagining potential sound and making it a reality. It's a very profound level of music making. And then, of course, there's his attitude toward Bach played on the, quote, correct instrument versus Bach played on modern instruments. And whereas it's easy to find a lot of snobbery or territorialism in either camp, Robert Hill approaches it with a great mindset. The benefit of studying historic practice is to not revive the way it was played, but to inform our modern decision-making. All in all, this interview is packed with enough insight to redefine the way you think about keyboard instruments, time, noise, historicity, and other things. A lot of names, a lot of ideas, a lot of Bach works referenced, and you could find all of that in the episode description. So for now, please enjoy my chat with the world-class Robert Hill. And now, on this special episode of the WTF Bach podcast, please welcome the inimitable inimitable Robert Hill. Robert Hill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Evan. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. It's about 10 p.m. in France. Can you give me a rundown of your day so far? What time did you wake up? Did you have coffee, tea? What did you have for lunch? Um, Well, I got up around 9 because I go to bed kind of late and had breakfast with my husband. And then uh, what did we do? Well, it's been raining all day, so we couldn't really go outside and... um, we're in the middle of a pretty big renovation project, which uh, kind of gets us up early most days of the week. And this this one day we had free, and so we actually, if you want to know the truth, we went back to bed, and <laughs> um, and just cocooned for most of the day. Did you play the harpsichord today? I I looked at it and checked the tuning. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I usually play the harpsichord when I need to. Sometimes when I want to, but not as often as I would like. I tend to get kind of preoccupied with techie stuff a lot these days. So you mentioned um, checking the tuning on the harpsichord. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm always interested in sort of what the first thing a musician does when he or she sits down at an instrument. For you, is it it tuning? Well, the first thing I want to know is, will I have to spend 10, 15 minutes retuning the instrument before I can use it? And the answer is usually yes because, you know, harpsichords react pretty quickly to changes of humidity and temperature. And so I've just I've just gotten accustomed to tuning them really often, um, which I don't mind. I like tuning. And to me, tuning is like making coffee. It turns out differently every time, and you just have to enjoy the ride. At what point in a harpsichordist's life does tuning become important? Is it right away? Well, I've noticed that those people who don't 
have a, a experience tuning feel handicapped. And I started tuning when I was 16. It's actually, you could say, it's a lifetime occupation because there are so many ways to approach the, the, the question of what does tuning involve and uh, what does it mean to be in tune. And So, for example, just to give you one example, um, we talked last time about my whether I would use a special tuning for the Goldbergs or the Art of Fugue, which are two you know, evening-long pieces where it would make sense to have a special tuning for G major or for D minor. Uh, but now I've just come to a point where it's, I don't worry about whether what I do is authentic or not, and I just want something to be as satisfying as possible. And so I basically now uh, try to do a separate tuning to, to, to devise a tuning for each piece that I play. So when I uh, recorded the, the French Suites last fall, I invented a separate tuning for each key. Uh -huh. which was really, really interesting because even then they didn't turn out as, as much like each other as you might think. They turned out very differently from each other. But uh, that's one of the wonderful things about the harpsichord is that it, it's so easy to tune. It just takes 10 to 15 minutes to tune actually the whole thing. Even if you're inventing a tuning, it doesn't take much more than that. And so it's, um, you can do whatever you want with the tuning as long as you don't break strings. Oh, how often do you break strings? Um, sometimes the instrument breaks strings. <laughs> um, usually, in, in, usually in, they break in the middle of the night <laughs> and uh, sometimes during rehearsals. And usually it's the top brass strings in the bass because those are the ones that are at the highest, that are closest to their breaking point. And sometimes um, modern, even modern materials get uh, metal fatigue or whatever. And, or it has a lot to do with humidity. Sometimes they just break. How long does it take you to, to replace a string? Well, I usually don't have the materials directly on hand because it doesn't happen very often. And so it probably takes about 10 to 15 minutes to replace a string, um, which means you have to find the, the coil of wire and make sure it's the right one and take the old string off and make a loop for the new one and then put it on and then make sure you put it on really competently so that it doesn't fall off again as you're, as you're tuning it. So... Yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it interrupts the flow, I have to say, and, and it's just one of the many things that makes the harpsichord not like a piano. Now, is this something that you might teach your students, like how to make a proper hitch pin loop? Absolutely, absolutely. I, in Freiburg, I had a, several times I held courses for my students because my class was fairly large there. And uh, we would practice making loops and practice um, voicing quills and replacing quills and uh, figuring out how to actually set up the whole action to regulate it. Because, you know, uh, way back in the day, I mean, we're talking like 40 years ago now, I worked for my brother as a harpsichord technician. So I installed uh, dozens of actions uh, on those instruments back in the late 70s and early 80s. And so I feel pretty okay as a harpsichord technician, even though I don't do it a lot anymore. Let's talk about your brother and I suppose your background. You're one of the foremost harpsichordists in the world. Now, how does that happen? How does one become a harpsichordist in a world of Chuck Berry and the Beatles? Um, well, in this case, actually, it does have a fair amount to do with uh, my brother, Keith Hill, who is a harpsichord maker and violin maker in Nashville, Tennessee now. And now we have to kind of go back not 40 years, but like 50 some odd years. And um, he came home from school one day with an LP record of Fernando Valenti playing Bach on the harpsichord. 
and uh, I just went crazy for it and started to um, imitate the pieces but transpose them into C major because that was the key I was most comfortable with um, on the piano. And then we started putting thumbtacks in the hammers of our upright, <laughs> and uh, which is not recommended to anybody, by the way. <laughs> Destroys the hammers if you do that. So you don't want to do that. So anyway, we started like that, and then uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up going to Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan, where my family lived at the time. And I was able to study harpsichord there. And then uh, my my family is lived in near Grand Rapids, Michigan, which has a large Dutch community at that time, or still does. And the so-called Dutch Immigrant Society invited a group of uh, musicians from Amsterdam, including Jaap Schutter, to play a concert, which I came down from Interlochen for, and I was just completely blown away by how nice these people were. And so I decided at the tender age of 16 that I was going to go to Holland and study harpsichord there. Now, we, we spoke about your brother, Keith Keith Hill, and, uh, of course, about harpsichord. So what do you think about Keith Jarrett's harpsichord playing? Well, let's talk about his improvisation. Okay. He's a, a fabulous improviser, uh, and I'm a, I admire the fact that he wants to explore instruments like the harpsichord. But uh, the harpsichord is an instrument that is really, really easy to play on, you understand what I mean, rather than to play. And uh, that's, uh, you could say that people who don't understand the nature of the action or the nature of the behavior of the instrument, they play on the instrument. And for many people, it's hard to tell the difference between playing the harpsichord or playing on the harpsichord. And so, yeah, if I'm honest, I would have to say that uh, Keith, along with many other pianists who play the harpsichord, tend to play on the instrument rather than play the instrument. I think one of the thrills about studying music is that when in the presence of a master such as yourself, one can feel like a beginner within minutes. And you said something about the harpsichord, which immediately redefined my relationship to it. Now, I don't even need to get a lesson from you, and already I'm thinking deeper about the harpsichord. <laughs> now, I'm paraphrasing, so uh, I apologize if I've missed mm -hmm. what you said okay. completely. Sure. Mm -hmm. Is this something along the lines of what you said? You said the harpsichord presents the listener with double information, the announcement of the attack, and the announcement of the release of the note. And this, coupled with its inability to inflect, well, it makes it a goal of yours to essentially make it so that the harpsichord isn't boring to people. Yeah, that's a um, pretty good paraphrase of what we were talking about. Uh, essentially, it has to do with, you could say, an essential difference between the harpsichord and the modern piano. If we start with a modern piano, the modern piano is regulated very, very carefully and to an extremely high level to um, minimize the sound of the, uh, of the damper coming back onto the string when you release a key. So that, in other words, a, a note is supposed to end silently, as silently as possible, unless the player forces the piano to make some kind of a noise at the end. Whereas on the harpsichord, it's very clear from the behavior of the instrument that from the very beginning the instrument was designed to produce an audible, obviously an audible accent at the beginning, as in a piano, uh, but possibly even sharper than a piano because the attack is quite bright. And then to have at the release, when you release the key, the mechanism falls down because of gravity and you hear easily 
the sound of the jack returning and the sound of the damper falling onto the string, and that creates a kind of consonant noise. It's not really an ugly noise, it's just, but it is an, as a kind of a noise, and that noise is a form of an accent. And as it turns out, that acts, the release accent is much easier to control on a harpsichord than the attack accent. Uh-huh. Uh, because you have a you have the, the, there's a relatively narrow spectrum of speeds with which you can pluck the string and still be able to um, manage the timing just the way you want it. There is a window there, and that does create the certain nuances of, of inflection, but the variety of inflection you get from the release is much, much more, um, you could say, vary, variegated. And so, historically speaking, starting with the revival of the harpsichord in the 1960s, the focus has been really on, or was for a very long time, on trying to understand how the articulation at the end of the sound influenced how the player was behaving. So as a, as a result, many harpsichordists of my generation were very much focused on articulation. Now, is this the only instrument that does it? Is this the only instrument that announces the release of the note? No, actually, the, the tracker action organ of the Baroque period has a very prominent, not exactly a noise, but an effect when the, when the pipe closes. You can hear that. And even the earliest fortepianos, the, the, the late 18th century Viennese-style fortepianos with their um, leather dampers, or, you know, or at least dampers that, that are differently configured than modern piano dampers, those have a very prominent release sound as well. Altogether, what you have to say is that if you look at at least those three instruments, that the aesthetic of keyboard playing in the 18th century was much more, must have been much more in the direction of speaking than in singing, than of singing. Uh, because this kind of constant involving of these consonances that you could say uh, separate the, the new pitches, that creates a, 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 an effect similar to speaking as opposed to singing. So this was inevitably a part of any Baroque keyboard player's uh, mindset. Um, yeah, the clavichord is an interesting exception because on the clavichord there is no release sound. Right. And you could say the clavichord is the, from, from my taste, the clavichord is the instrument that joins all of the others together. And that's how it was also under, understood as a pedagogical instrument in the 18th century was that as a preparation for playing the harpsichord or the organ or the piano, the clavichord was the best possible preparation. Now, I've read that the clavichord was Bach's favorite instrument. Is that, uh, I mean, is that something we can measure? Well, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting quote. I have come to look at things, um, and I'm eternally thankful to my musicology education for having made it possible for me to come to this position. I tend to look at things in terms of the ideological framework around the way that um, opinions are made or framed or beliefs are made or framed. And that quote comes from the end of the 18th century, as far as I know. It's probably from Forkel, a box biographer Forkel, Johann Nicholas Forkel. And I think it reflects the fact that at the end of the 18th century, the harpsichord was not loved at all. The harpsichord was detested by the end of the 18th century and had been completely marginalized. And so it would have been inconceivable for Forkel to advance the notion that the harpsichord was Bach's favorite instrument. 
simply because the harpsichord was no longer understood or accepted. And um, so that's, to me, what lies behind Forkel's claim that the, the clavichord was Bach's favorite instrument. It has, uh, finally, we'll never know. However, we can, we can say that Bach wrote a huge amount of incredibly well-composed music for the harpsichord, and you can kind of draw your conclusions from that. And by contrast, there is not very much music of Bach's that spe seems specifically designed for the clavichord. Very little, in fact. What repertoire do you think was specifically designed for the clavichord? My personal feeling, again, this is all um, my these are opinions, because in most matters like this regarding the distant past, it's really hard to prove anything. Yeah? So my opinion is that something that a piece like the chromatic fantasy uh, in D minor of Bach was originally a clavichord piece and is profoundly, in its best sense, a clavichord piece. And the fugue as well, actually. At the end of the fugue of the chromatic fantasy, you get those octaves at the end, uh, just a couple of a couple of bars before the end, and you never see that writing in, in harpsichord music of Bach's. You, he, occasionally he'll do some octaves, but not, not a whole cascade of them. It has to do with just the behavior of the action. So in that sense, the clavichord is more like a piano, where octaves are really, really natural to play. On the harpsichord, they're not natural at all. That passage has always struck me as being um, bizarre. I, I sort of thought uh, maybe this was something that Bach did in his youth. You know, he starts out this, he starts this out uh, in, in, in octaves, but it's very different. It's in two hands. Yeah, and that's, uh, you could say, another piece that people have varying opinions about how it, how it came to be. But nonetheless, there are, aside from the, uh, the chromatic fantasy, there are some uh, these little preludes, these teaching pieces of Bach that I think were certainly composed to be practiced on the clavichord. The, the you know the little ones that, that children start their Bach with, as I did myself. And of course, there are any number of pieces that are playable on the clavichord, and I wouldn't want to prevent anyone from thinking that they can't play these pieces on the clavichord. It's just that, in a sense, the clavichord as a instrument nowadays, I think, has to be understood primarily as a preparation for playing either the harpsichord or the piano or the forte piano or the, or the organ. That's its primary role nowadays. I was always sort of struck by the idea that Bach, with all these children in this large room, could have had two sons practicing in two different corners of the room, both playing clavichords, and they wouldn't be able to... Uh, to interrupt each other's practice. Well, there's there's something to be said for that. Um, although um, <laughs> that brings to mind this description by Charles Burney in the set from the 1770s of his visit to a conservatory in Naples, where he came went into this room and there were a bunch of kids, boys, I suppose, um, all practicing harpsichord simultaneously. Sort of like what it's like to be at Bruges at the harpsichord exhibition in Bruges in Belgium. Uh, just, just a, just a cacophony of harpsichord sound. So you know, there's, there's that too. Glenn Gould. I was going to ask you about what you thought of Gould, but you, you beat me to it. You said that this statement, whatever your reservations may be about his playing, this statement is one of the most profound statements about the instrument. And I think I memorized it. On the harpsichord, you have the choice between rhythmic inexorability and its converse, which is infinite rubato. 
a type of sound world which never comes to rest on any bar line. Right. What, what did Gould mean? Did he mean it was either or? Did he mean it was somewhere in between? And my question is, why can't infinite rubato come to rest on a bar line? Uh, well, I, that's the way he formulated it. I don't think the bar line part is actually the fun part, <laughs> the, or the prof, even the profound part. The, the profound part is that it's either exactly on the, so, that when you play a note, it's either exactly on a beat, or it's not. And because the harpsichord sound is so precise, it's when it's when when you play something that's not exactly on the beat. You're, the player instantly has to take responsibility for, if they do that deliberately, of course, they have to take responsibility for where they're putting it, if it's not exactly on the beat. And that opens up an incredibly, you could say, boundless area of how do you know when to play something? And I think that's what he's describing. And that is the essence of what it means to play the harpsichord, is that you have to decide when to play something. Even if you play it on the beat, you have to decide to do that. That's a very, very different um, realm of musical thinking than most instruments are confronted with, or most, mu most musicians, I think, are confronted with. And how you make those decisions has a great deal to do with how you think you get a framework of belief structures that, that give you permission or take that permission away from you to do something with the beat. So just to give you one little example, uh, it's very common on the harpsichord to break, that is to arpeggiate very slightly, um, a, a downbeat. And you could say the most, almost all harpsichordists do this when they play downbeats is they break them slightly. And they do this partly to mitigate the intensity of the attack of all of the notes coming at once, and partly to create the feeling of breadth so that there's feel a more, more of a feeling of substance in the sound when they play a strong beat. But in fact, when they're doing that, they're taking a certain liberty with the text because there's nothing in the text that, that says do that. And so they're, in a sense, um, doing something that, that a pianist has to get in order to break a, a chord. A pianist has to, you could say, have almost a kind of epiphany in order to be able to break a chord <laughs> whereas on the harpsichord if you don't it's the, i mean the instrument is incredibly inexpressive if one doesn't at least allow yourself to at least to do that so the harpsichord then um it just goes from there because if you allow yourself to be free in one sense how do you set limits on where your freedom stops and the answer to that is the only thing that you can that predictably or reliably use as a guideline for your limits is your own sense of good taste. Now, good taste is conditioned by the ideological framework of the uh, per, of the person's training and their background and the place they come from and the, the the period that they live in. So, good taste is very conditional. And so the question is, you know, now today we have a, a standard of good taste, but what was that taste like in the 18th century, and how do we know that? And I think the fact of the matter is, there's no way to know for sure how people played in the 18th century. So I take that as a kind of liberating uh, reality that we'll never know for sure, and what I like to do is do a best guess, 
of what to do in any given situation, but always with the idea that I'm trying to expand the expressive potential of my instrument by, by exploring various ways of solving problems. I can preface this by saying that, uh, if you don't mind, you've been alive now longer than Bach ever was alive. <laughs> and, in, and unless you have a compositional career, which I don't know about, or 20 children, it might be safe to say that you've played the harpsichord for more hours than Bach. So my question is, how much better was Bach at the harpsichord than, you know, than us? Or, or has the standard actually risen? Yeah. We have to, we have to understand that, that um, if you look at any art form in the past, whatever, let's say, let's say one of the pictures on the wall behind me, and you think about the culture that goes into the training of the artist who is able to like that like that behind behind me there's a picture of a church tower somewhere in paris that was uh, painted around 1840 and um you know what level of culture went into the training of that painter and my next question is so why can't a modern painter get the same effect and it's really 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 hard to imitate a previous artistic style so that you so that the, the viewer doesn't can't can't tell that there's been an imitation. It's really bit difficult to do that. And and the question is, so why is it so difficult? What is going on? And what I think is that for every art form, there's a really dense layer, layers upon layers of cultural uh, understanding that go into um, something like painting a picture or playing an instrument. Let's contrast today with the 18th century. Nowadays, it's extremely rare for a child to start the harpsichord as their first keyboard instrument. It's extreme. I've had a, a half dozen or so in my experience uh, in my class, and inevitably, those people, in my experience, have a much more profound sense of touch than players who start later. So you could say that just that one thing, where in the in, in earlier periods or in the 18th century, everybody would have started as a child. And so their understanding of harpsichord sonority would have been much more um, highly developed just because they're, they trained their ears and their fingers and their minds uh, from the outset with that sound in mind and with that set of, of, you could say, possibilities and limitations. And nowadays, if you're coming from, let's say, the piano or the organ and you start the harpsichord at the age of 20 or even later, as many people do, it takes a very long time to overcome the, you could say, technical differences between what it means to play a piano or, or an organ and what it means to play a harpsichord. And I suppose just the general sound world we live in, you know, every time I tune the clavichord, I unplug my refrigerator. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was a lot quieter. It was a lot quieter back then, wasn't it? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think that... Uh, um, that they had a different, a whole different understanding of what their environment was for them. You know, I think I, I, we, I think today we we have the luxury, if you want to call it that, of living fairly isolated lives. Many of us, so we're used to um, a fair amount of not having a huge family. Basically, even having one child is is, is chaos, and imagine a whole fleet of them. Um, so you know. I think that uh, um, it's really hard to compare. But yes, uh, we're very used to having ambient noise 
ambient machine noise. And in fact, one of the big shocks of coming back to the States uh, when I took the job at, at, in Colorado was discovering that almost every performance venue that I was in in the States has very, very perceivable machine noise that's constant. Hmm. And that's not the case in Europe. In Europe, the, the performance venues are much, much quieter. And, you know, I was frankly horrified because that if, if the machine noise is louder than the instrument that's playing, like the harpsichord, and that's easily the case, how is it possible to have any kind of satisfactory experience as a listener? Right. So there are, you could say that we live in a world where, yes, we have, in a sense, a lot more um, opportunity to isolate ourselves, but also in a world where we're just so, so used to having noise pollution that we don't even notice it. So can you tell us about the lute harpsichord? Uh, you know, there are all these famous works for lute harpsichord, um, and I've always heard guitarists say, well, you know, Bach didn't know how to play the lute, and that's why these lute suites are unplayable. Can, can we debunk this myth in 10 words? I'm not sure what, what myth you want to debunk, so I just have to explain it more clearly. If you want me to debunk something, you have to be a bit more specific. Um. Uh, what instrument were these works for lute, so-called lute written for? Lautenwerke. You mean the, uh, the Bach keyboard works, the Bach works that are... The, that the are, Bach, yeah. yes. Okay, well, what we have to understand about the harpsichord is that the design of the harpsichord is much, much more amorphous in terms of setting limits on what the instrument is than a, a piano. So on a harpsichord, it's really easy to to build a harpsichord with one keyboard or two keyboard or keyboards or possibly even three keyboards, whereas on a piano, really, you're stuck with one keyboard. That's it. Although attempts were made in the 19th century, but that's just a kind of marginal thing. And one of those variables that can be mod, uh, modified when you're building a harpsichord or designing a harpsichord is the stringing. So let's say in Italian harpsichords of the 17th and 18th centuries, um, my best understanding is that brass stringing uh, throughout the instrument was standard, although there are, there's, there's some discussion there. Whereas in Northern Europe, the, the, the stringing was a mix of brass and, and in the bass and, and iron in the treble. But it's also possible to replace the metal strings altogether with gut strings. So that's, you could say, the, nothing about the, the harpsichord design prevents you from putting gut strings on, except that you then have to completely redesign the instrument to, to make that work musically. So we have the name of the, the, the lute harpsichord was known in all European countries, at least in France, Italy, Germany, and England, uh, in the 17th and 18th century. So we know they existed, but the only, you could say, clearly defined and traceable practice of building them actually comes, first, to my best knowledge, from Bach's circle himself. He had uh, an instrument maker who uh, built him a lute harpsichord, and I think that the idea of somehow discovering a voice in the harpsichord that sound, that's more like a lute must have been fascinating to Bach. And, and then we have the additional problem that by the early 18th century, the level of lute playing in general, the lute, the lute was in decline, and so there were very few lute players around that could actually play the instrument with a high level of sophistication. And so the idea of having an instrument that could simulate the lute, I think, was attractive to Bach and his circle. And there are 
not a lot of pieces, but a, a certain repertory of pieces that are very clearly written for the the, the um, Lautenwerk, as it's called in German. He arranged a lot of his violin, his solo violin works and his cello suites uh, for this Lautenwerk. And that brings me to sort of a question that I have. It seems like um, Gustav Leonhardt, you and others, you have this tradition of playing the Chaconne on the harpsichord. <laughs> Do you think this is a tradition that came from Bach himself? Do you think Bach would do something similar with the Chaconne? Let's put it this way. There are um, certain manuscripts from the middle of the 18th century that contain transcriptions of Bach's, uh, two of Bach's solo violin pieces. The, the, so the question arises, did Bach have anything to do with those transcriptions? And the answer is, we can't say for sure. They're fun to play. They're, they make really good harpsichord music. And they're part of a tradition in general of transcribing music of, of other instruments for the harpsichord. And um, I believe also Bach's biographer Forkel says something at, said something at the end of the 18th century that Bach liked to play his violin pieces on the, on the keyboard, maybe the clavichord. The pieces that, are, that survive, it, you cannot conclusively associate them with Bach. What I can say is that they're extremely well composed and that it's unclear who else might have done that. Uh, I mentioned Leonhardt. Do you remember the first time you met him? Yes. That was at a concert in Holland, Michigan in 1967. I even kept the program. Um, and uh, I, because by that time, my brother and I were full into the harpsichord, and the, again, the Dutch Immigrant Society, uh, which was centered in, in that area, invited Gustav Leonhardt, who was Dutch, to uh, play this recital at, uh, there, and they had a harpsichord, and um, yeah, so that was my first encounter, and I, I was, he's, he's a very, um, he has a certain kind of presence, which had to do with, I think, a certain kind of stillness or um, quietness, reserve, but also a certain kind of, you could feel a certain kind of in intensity that's, that's being contained. And um, it, was, uh, it was a very inspiring concert, and I pretty much decided at that moment that I, that's who I wanted to study with. What were lessons like with him? What, what language did you speak with him? Well, you know, Dutch people, educated Dutch people, tend to speak really, really beautiful English. Gustav Leonhardt was an exceptionally well-read person, um, so he um, was, you could say, very much in, invested in understanding the culture of the Baroque period through the literature of the time, and a lot of that literature was uh, English, in, in the English language, so he would quote Dryden, and, you know, I didn't, at that point, didn't even know who Dryden was, and things like that, and, and he lived in this mansion on uh, in, on the most, you could say, the poshest canal in Amsterdam, although he didn't own the house. He rented it. Uh, and the house was outfitted with, uh, basically it looked like a, a house from the 17th or early 18th century. It was entirely outfitted in, in historical furnishings. So you could say he surrounded himself with a, an, an historical ambience, and uh, that 
made a really deep impression on me because uh, you know I was um, coming from the states where the past is kind of a foreign country. Seeing that it's possible to live like that and and and, and you could say get value from surrounding yourself with the past. Uh, that that made a deep impression, and if you you know you you have video on, so you can see my library. You can see that I live a little bit like that. It's not exactly like uh, the Herrenkraft 172, but it's uh, it's you know my version of it. You know, are the walls in your library green? Because I I visited Goethe's library and I saw that all of his walls were green. And actually, this room, which has been my bedroom for about seven years, when I first moved in. I painted these walls green because I wanted to feel like I was living in Goethe's library. So is there, is, is there a tradition of painting libraries green in Europe? Um, no, uh, but let's start with Goethe's house in Weimar. Um, and you're absolutely right, Goethe, Goethe was a color freak. You're right. He was fascinated by the effect of color on the human mind and, and the human spirit. And every room was painted in a different intense color. And that made it, when my partner and I were visiting that uh, that house it made a huge impression on us and uh, and we found this uh, company and it's an english paint company called pharaoh and ball which has affiliates in, in larger american cities and they have classical paint uh, colors that have been reconstructed from paint samples from the 18th and early 19th centuries and this particular color is i forget what it's called downpipe or something like that um, anyway it's um, and it's a marvelous marvelous color to to put in a library because it makes the books look great wow yeah. okay so eventually eventually we're going to talk about the art of fugue but uh, <laughs> i just wanted to uh to get there through through something that you have an expertise in i'm going to quote uh Bach's first biographer forkel the most renowned clavier composers of the day were froberger fischer carol pachabel buxtehude bruns and berm Johann Christoph possessed a book containing several pieces by these masters, and the young Johann Sebastian begged earnestly for it, but without effect. Refusal increasing his determination, he laid his plans to get that book without his brother's knowledge. It was kept on a bookshelf which had a latticed front. Bach's hands were small. Inserting them, he got hold of the book, rolled it up, and drew it out, and as he was not allowed a candle, he could only copy it out on moonlit nights. And it was six months before he completed this heavy task. As soon as it was completed, he looked forward to using it in a secret treasure, won by so much labor, but his brother found it, took the copy away, without pity, nor did Bach recover it until after his brother's death. Is this the Andreas Bach book? Uh, no, it's the Andreas Bach book is uh, possibly, assuming that that is not just a, a, a parable or a, a kind of story, assuming that there's some truth behind it, um, the, the so-called Moonlight Manuscript was would have been a sister manuscript to the two manuscripts that are do, that do survive from the library of Bach's eldest brother, with whom he studied harpsichord or keyboard, and and with whom he lived after his parents died, and those are the Andreas Bach book and the Miller manuscript. So it would have been, it would have been a something similar, but probably much smaller. And, and and if we think that it had to be rolled up, it had to be much, much smaller because the Andreas Bach book and the Miller manuscript are pretty hefty. 
they contain each one contains what 50 pieces or something right but you know the manuscripts in that time came in all the shapes and sizes and uh, so there could it could easily have been something that could have been rolled up and so the story is not in, inconceivable but i suppose since you know the pasacalia and fugue and the toccatas are in the andreas bach book this would have been a, a younger bach who was who had small enough hands you know i suppose he wasn't writing the pasacalia when his hands were small enough to stuff through a cupboard right um yeah i think i mean if, how old would he have been when he did this and uh, what does it say about his character uh it's all very interesting you know it's it all it does present the world of somebody who's incredibly gifted and but as a child uh doesn't understand the consequences of their deeds in fact in that period owning a piece of music because printing was rather still quite rare owning a period a piece of music was quite proprietary and if you had it you could actually determine who else had it by allowing them to copy or not so making illegal copies or copies without permission was fairly egregious um, a breach of um, a propriety in that period so it's understandable that his brother would have been annoyed on the other hand if we think about exactly what those pieces might have been, let's say, it would have been something like a Froberger Toccata or something like that. It would not be difficult to come up with an analog manuscript of pieces that might have been like the ones that are in that man were in that Moonlight manuscript. I've never tried to do so, but it would be fun to try to put together something like that. And I think that what we have to think of is that just the act of copying them probably was more important for Bach than actually practicing them. Because in the 18th century, it was common to acquire knowledge by copying texts, something that's gone completely out of fashion nowadays. And so he would have been, you could say, immersing himself in the world of how that composer was thinking as he was making the copies. So in a sense, he was giving himself composition lessons by doing that illegal copying. Have you ever copied out uh, by hand a piece of music? Oh, sure. A lot. Yeah, and when I made my transcriptions, I always make them, uh, I used to uh, make them uh, first by hand and then put them into software, uh, which, you know, makes them a lot easier to manipulate. We are here and you are here. You're on a podcast which up till now has dealt exclusively with the Art of Fugue. Now, you've recorded this work twice or three times? Well, I recorded it solo back in the 1980s, and then I recorded it again um, with the Musica Antiqua Quiln, where I was playing uh, solo on some pieces and uh, uh, playing together with Andreas Steyer on some other pieces and then playing with uh, the, the ensemble and a couple of others. And then I recorded another solo version for Hensler 20 years ago. So I've performed it and recorded it quite a lot. It seems like on one of your recordings, you play the 14th contrapuntus and you leave it incomplete and then on another one you you don't play the 14th contrapuntus that has to do with the fact that on in i believe the one that i recorded in the 80s was the early version of the art of fugue that was for music and arts uh, a, a record label in san francisco and that was the early version, which lacks quite a number of the pieces that Bach added later. I was going to ask you about that, right? Including the, the, the last contrapuntus. And, and two of the four canons. Yes, there are, uh, the early version lacks the two, two of the canons. It lacks a couple of fugues. And uh, 
and re he rewrote a couple of other fugues uh, quite a lot and then added uh, the um, the last contrapuntus as well and plus if we want to go there the the, the uh, adaptations of the mirror fugues for two keyboards have you ever tried to complete the 14th fugue no um, I, I've never seen any completion that I thought was even remotely plausible. I think that uh, the, the, the argument that Bach himself had worked out how the, 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 the ending would work out contrapuntally is a very strong argument. So there must have been a draft of the end uh, around when he died. But um, how he would have proceeded from where the piece breaks off to combining them and how much material came in between and how that how the combination would if would work in practice and also we have to remember that the entire artifugue is playable on a single manual harpsichord you know with the exception of the arrangements for two keyboards of the uh, of the mirror fugues you can play the whole thing and so actually for my Hansler recording I I, I as deliberately recorded it on an Italian harpsichord uh, to make the point that it's all playable with two hands on one keyboard. And so whatever has to happen with that final ending, it also has to be playable on by two hands on one keyboard. And that's a, a really, really difficult constraint to work within. And is, if, if we want to spend some time going there, uh, one of the arguments that I think is quite strong for Bach having conceived the piece as a harpsichord piece. It is a harpsichord piece. I mean... Well, a lot of people don't think so. That's why, we, you know... Well, the examples that people, I suppose, point to are the codetta of the six contrapuntists and the large uh, reaches in the mirror fugues. But that's all playable. It's true that the mirror... The, the, there are some places in the mirror fugues that don't work uh, that played by one person. Um, they will work played by uh, one person or by two people on one harpsichord. They can be arranged like that, and I've performed the piece quite frequently on one harpsichord with a second person playing, um, uh, taking over the uh, one one voice in the in one or two voices in the mirror fugues. Uh, that works very nicely. Because of the technical requirements of the mirror fugue, it's not possible to stay within the limits of uh, playing with two hands. It's true. Um, however, in the the rest of the piece does. I don't really think that the um, um, you could say the 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 latent pitches at the end of something like the sixth contrapuntus are a strong argument because. Bach does that in other keyboard pieces as well. I'm thinking of the, I believe, the A minor fugue from Book One. There are any number of early pieces um, of his which also, at the, especially at the end, um, in a sense, go beyond what's possible to hold down. I think that to assume that people in the 18th century thought the same thing, thought, this, thought the same way we do about what it means to have a, 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 a note sounding or not sounding, I don't think we can make that assumption. What we have to realize is that music, and this is one of my favorite subjects actually, I confess, that music is full of latent sound. 
that music is full of sounds that aren't there. And uh, at, at one of the jobs of the harpsichordist is to immerse themselves in the world of sounds that are not there. Simply because when you play continuo, what you're doing is you're pulling sounds out of thin air. You understand what I mean? Um, so we have to improvise the right hand part, and in order to do so, we have to imagine those sounds. And, and in order to, because in order to play them, you have to imagine them. And so harpsichordists are extremely well versed in imagining stuff that's not there. And that blurs the line between what is real and what's imaginary to a very strong degree. Uh, and that brings us to this idea that, that, that latent sound or sounds that are not, that are not audible uh, play an ex a huge role in how we conceive or how we ought to conceive of 18th century music. <laughs> You're kind of shocked by that, I can see. <laughs> Certainly. Basically, if you compare that with the piano, or even 19th century music, um, basically um, on the piano, if you want something, you can have it. There's almost no limit to what a, what a really good pianist can do with a piano in terms of realizing things. And with a symphony orchestra, if the composer wants it, they get it. And our musical surroundings for the last 150 years have been dominated by instruments or instrument groups that do not require that we imagine anything. And so we've gotten very, very poor at imagining stuff that's not there. Whereas in earlier periods, I mean, and the harpsichord is the perfect example, the instrument is really, if we're honest about it, has a very thin sound. And in order to make that thin sound appear thick or rich, you have to do stuff uh, with your mind. You have to learn to, as it were, impose on the on the instrument that you're playing an imagination of something that's much richer and the more if efficiently the player does that the more the instrument starts to behave as if it had that kind of richness and you could say it's like mind over matter in a sense except that in this case it's imagination over the actual sound that a good harpsichordist imposes the, their imagination of the sound they want on the instrument and then something that reflects that comes out I wanted to ask you about a couple things on your blog, but this is sort of in keeping with the piano versus harpsichord thing. As you do play the modern Steinway occasionally. Very occasionally. I, I have my issues with the, the action of modern pianos because I think they're not properly weighted. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to make a plug here for the uh, extremely creative piano regulation work of David Stanwood who works in, in Massachusetts. He's an extraordinary and brilliant piano technician and has, in my mind, completely rewritten the book on what it means to, to regulate and weight a piano action. And on David's pianos, I can play them very easily and I don't get tired, you know, coming from a light action harpsichord. But on most pianos, I get very tired after about five minutes hmm. because I just don't understand what's involved in getting these sluggish keys to go down. And, you know, I've tried to take lessons and, and gotten a, made small progress. And I own a grand piano, a concert grand. Uh, so, uh, and I, I had David work on it for a week. And it improved a lot. But it's, I just think they're badly, unless they're really, really well regulated, they're usually not very fun to play for me. So I just don't do that. 
Now you also write that you practice to metronomes, very, very slow metronomes, 15 beats uh, to the minute. And I find the most remarkable thing about your playing is that you have this amazing sense of each voice having its own sort of sense of freedom and yet it's all coming from the same contrapuntal mind. Is that a consequence of practicing with a really slow metronome, developing this immense freedom? Well, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate it. I'm going to try to keep this as unwonky as possible and as short as possible, but it's a little bit of a complicated thing to explain. Basically, in our modern-day understanding of how people made music in the 18th century, there has been, as a rule, a consensus that in the 18th century way of thinking about counting, that they they had a very predictable and clear and steady beat. And this idea of the beat needing to be stylistically correct, needing to be predictable, steady, and, and, and also fairly quick, is, you could say, practically universal in, in the modern way of view of how 18th century music is performed. Um, my personal p opinion is that that view is, does not wear well when applied to the harpsichord. In other words, I think that the harpsichord by its nature doesn't respond well when it's treated with that particular f understanding of counting. And that's what actually creates the single biggest barrier to harpsichordists feeling musically competent on the instrument. And also to correspondingly to people enjoying the harpsichord. And what I have found is that if you redefine your understanding of how to count when you make music, that problem just simply disappears. Because there are lots of ways to count, and many of those ways of counting um, create really interesting musical and expressive behaviors that make the harpsichord sound extraordinary and quite magical. Uh, but in order to be able to capitalize on them, you have to move away from the notion that 18th century music was counted in this rather conformist way. And uh, that's a heavy lift for almost everybody, apparently, because it's, um, it's, it's an idea that I've been pursuing for 30 years, if not more. And um, it's um, not gotten a lot of resonance in the time that I've been trying to persuade people uh, that it's a good idea to do. But in the meantime, I've been practicing a lot and, you know, going around the block over and over and over and over again. So at this point, I feel pretty confident about um, how I work with it as an idea. And one of those aspects is that if you can allow yourself to focus on having a pulse that's fairly predictable, but rather slow, 
what it allows you to do is to be quite flexible with the organization of the events between those pulses and that allows the music to breathe and also sets off a host of other behaviors including that you can let the individual voices be more independent of each other and that leads to uh, just a whole different way of listening which is more kind of quadraphonic uh, than our than what usually comes out uh, in uh, in using the conventional way of listening or thinking about uh, how, you, how to count. So yes, uh, learning to practice with a metronome that's slower in order to feel like you can be free within the beat, but yet have points where you come back to and, and you know that you're heading towards. That's actually very important. And, you know, if you look at, if you read sources in a certain way from that period, you can find corroboration for that way of thinking, you know. But, uh, but the fact remains that you can read anything you want into any source. And people always have, and apparently always will. So, it, you know, basically sources don't actually tell us that much, unfortunately. That much that we can really, really rely on. Because it's just so easy to, uh, to bring your own story into what you see in a source. And, that is, and so what you're basically doing is you're looking at yourself in the mirror and thinking that you've somehow understood something. And uh, there's a certain kind of, you could say, creative uncertainty that I think is much, much more productive and much more fun and uh, has accompanied me through my whole path and I th would recommend it to anybody in a minute just because it keeps me young, basically. Do you think, do you, do you think Bach... Uh, um, <laughs> I, of course, it's all speculation, but what's your personal opinion? Do you think Bach had uh, any, any bad habits, you know? I mean, we, we have that one receipt from him uh, spending about a... A month where he was testing out this organ and we've got this you know he had firewood he had a case of beer a, a pint of brandy and a, a pouch of pipe tobacco i mean he was young then do you think he was a brandy drinker and a pipe smoker well if you live in europe what you realize is that everybody just about everybody drinks alcohol it's um, because wine is really cheap in germany and france and italy and spain compared with the states and so it's just, you know, the, it's a whole culture where social consumption of alcohol is just normal. And in, in the 18th century, people drank beer for breakfast. And, you know, even even today, if you go to Spain and you, you know, just look at a construction worker, they'll be drinking beer at like 10 o'clock in the morning. I don't want to condone it by any means. Uh, but uh, I just think that that back in the 18th century, water was very possibly poisonous. And whereas uh, alcohol, uh, a drink that had alcohol in it was uh, less so from the standpoint of getting, um, you know, bacteria and whatnot. So it's kind of understandable that they would have uh, been much more open to consuming alcohol than we are today. We live in a very, very prissy Calvinistic age as far as I'm concerned. Um, in, I think it was 2008... There were these um, discoveries which sort of set the Bach world on fire. There was the reconstruction of his skull from Carolyn Wilkinson. And then, of course, though I believe it happened about 30 years prior, it, the doodle on the title page of the Well-Tempered Clavier sort of became popular. So, uh, And you've written on your blog that, yes, we believe that the doodle is in fact a a tuning scheme because Bach wasn't really the sort of person to just scribble on his uh, personal 
personal masterpiece. Did do you have anything to say about his face? You know, I mean, I remember at the time everyone started printing his face on T-shirts, and yes, this is actually Bach, and I just thought he looked a lot like John Carigliano. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, there are certain museums or libraries in the world where, where you, if you go to them, you can see the portraits, the Hausmann portraits of various versions of the of the portrait. The standard portrait that was made of Bach is an old man. And I would have to say that I would prefer to get my impression of who Bach was through the eyes of someone who I was actually looking at him uh, than a, a computer reconstruction. Re, these reconstructions are really fascinating, but they're kind of, they don't, they're not, they're, they're fascinating for five minutes, you know. Whereas the, the beauty of an original painting is that it never gets, never gets boring, actually. I, you know, I... I'm a huge fan of 18th century and earlier culture, and uh, you know, I, I basically, you know, when that's one of the joys of living in Europe is the, having ready access to, uh, at least when there's not a lockdown, ready access to uh, to old stuff, old buildings, um, remnants of culture, and I think that's one of the things that has given America its character is the lack of being surrounded by old stuff. In a sense, Americans tend to live in the present, partly because of their, you could say, lack of, of being grounded or anchored in uh, relics of the past surrounding them. Now, as, as far as the doodle on the Well-Tempered Clavier page goes, I, we don't need to get into the specifics of that, but what I want to ask you is this seal, this Bach's seal, you know, I've always said if, if I were to get one tattoo, I, I, w- I would, sh- sh- <laughs> you know, I, I, would sh- cool. I would shave my head and have it, you know, tattooed right on the seal, uh, right, 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 on the, right on my skull. Uh, let me try and describe this for people listening. It's sort of, it has his his initials JSB sort of in this mirror image so that you can, the J is sort of turned on its side so that when it's put into a mirror, it kind of looks like a B and the S is going both ways. And then you have this crown on the top of it. Is within the crown there another tuning scheme? No, I don't think that the that we need to look for a tuning scheme in the crown. But to get back to the doodle, if you don't <laughs> mind, there's, again, it's really hard to look at any kind of, even scholarly argument, and not kind of get, you could say, analytically sidetracked by the question of where is somebody coming from and what agendas do they want to advance? So let's just to start with the squiggle, the question is, is the squiggle a tuning system or not? Well, we, we can't prove that it is. On the other hand, a couple of years before Bach composed the WTC1, the manuscript on which the squiggle appears in the title page, another German composer, whose name I've forgotten, published a manuscript that had a kind of squiggle like that on the title page, and it was a tuning system. And this was picked up on by somebody in the 1980s, and then kind of dropped, and then recovered um, later on, but I think that too little has been made of the connection between what Bach did on the WTC and this, and this, you could say, example that he very well may have been following. The likelihood is quite large that he didn't come up with the idea himself. He copied it from somebody else because he thought it was a good idea. The question is, you know, if it's a, if it's a tuning system, how do you 
decipher it. And then again, you're coming up with also the question is, what is going on in the mind of somebody who's trying to decipher it? Where are they coming from? What are their value systems? And so I have to say that I've not found any solution that's published particularly satisfactory. And I've developed my own solution, which I find it plausible, but it requires buying into an understanding of how to divide and now it's going to get technical, how to divide the syntonic comma, so that it, um, essentially my system requires that you divide it into 13 parts, and 13 part divisions were rather rare in the 18th century, and that's one of the reasons that those people who specializes in, specializes in thinking about the squiggle have shied away from it, but the fact is that there's practically no difference in, in, in terms of audibility between a 12 part division and a 13 part division. So I, I, I find that argument quite weak. And my version, actually, for people wanting to try the squiggle, try the tuning that's based on it, the closest thing I've ever seen to my own version is John Barnes's tuning, which is on present on many tuning machines or tuning softwares. So I recommend people play with that. Barnes Bach. How likely is it that the squiggle is applicable to all 24 preludes and fugues? Uh, that's a good question. And in uh, my iteration of what... Uh, the squiggle means in fact you can play in all 24 keys and it every key is acceptable there are a couple of keys like c sharp major where the third between c sharp and e sharp is pretty wide and that kind of puts you at the edge of what's comfortable but and also A-flat major has a rather large third between A-flat and C. On the whole, what I have always looked for in a tuning is something that appears to get where the thirds get larger as you go through the circle of fifths. So that the thirds for F and A and C and E are the smallest. And that as you progressively go through and add sharps or flats, that the thirds in those triads get wider and wider. Because with this kind of an approach to tuning, you can actually feel the tension increase as you go from one key to the next. And uh, so that's how I, that was my philosophy of tuning for a very, very long time, was to try to get that um, progression through the circle of fifths of increasing tension. But like I say, my newest shtick is to just not concern myself with what, what may or may not be authentic and just do something that I think is as aesthetically best adapted to the piece I'm playing as possible, even, even if it means retuning between pieces. So in that regard, I do have to ask you about the sixth contrapuntist. It seems like until there were harpsichordists, the pianists were always playing. They were not double dotting. I gave a bunch of examples of harpsichordists who were double dotting. And then I said, but then there's Robert Hill. And, and you, you don't play it double, double dotted. Can you remind me what I do? Is uh, well, I, I well, I mean, I can't quite <laughs> imitate you, but you know, I think. Okay, yeah. Essentially, this goes back to the question of what does a text tell us about what to do? And you could say the whole ethic of the historical performance practice movement has been to specialize in understanding what texts tell us. So you could say the last hundred years have been devoted to trying to understand more profoundly what texts tell us, partly by looking at how instruments 
behave when we look at certain ways of understanding what the text is trying to say about what to do musically. And I have become, I think, rather liberal about understanding the limits of what texts tell us. And so because I tend to try to find the limit of what a text is saying and then explore from there, I've become rather careful about trying to play exactly what I see as much as possible as a way of compensating. And in terms of something like the Sixth Contrapuntus, I think what I'm probably what I probably did, this was, you know, twenty more even longer years ago, um, was to try to play it as written and watch what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means that some of them, some of the dotted rhythms are going to sound like I'm not over dotting, and some will sound quite sharp, because you know the quicker the rhythm is, the more sharp it sounds, even if you're not over dotting. And uh, that piece, the nature of that, the composition of that piece is that you have this dotted rhythm being expressed at various levels of the meter at the same time, so very very slow to extremely fast all at the same time, and I th- I think that the uh, I mean, without claiming that that's how Bach would have played it, I think that there's a lot to be said by just playing it as close to what you see as possible, if only as a kind of preparation for not doing that if you decide that that it's not satisfactory. But the idea that somehow, because of various 18th century traditions of not playing things the way they were written, that we should jump to that solution as quickly as possible, which I, I don't buy into that at all. I think that we need to start by especially if our ultimate agenda is to uh, launch off into the, uh, you know, the, this, this realm that Glenn Gould was describing of, of infinite uh, rubato. If, we are, if our goal is to launch ourselves into that, then we are, we are best served by starting as conservatively as possible. And that's what I try to do. That's excellent. Uh, you have certainly one of the most memorable openings of the second partita. Again, there's that, that you know that case. You, I suppose, uh, any college student can tell you that you know, ba-dum, ba-dum, it's supposed to be ba dum, dum. So it's not, not so clear cut, is it? No, that's that's actually, uh, without wanting to get into too much detail, the um, the first movement of the C minor partita is one of the most interesting examples of how Bach is using a certain kind of. Um, counting behavior to structure the entire movement. Um, 
but that in order to to go there you have to start with the uh, asking the question is do composers try to convey instructions about how to play their music through the way that the piece is composed and i believe that com that good composers do try to communicate with their end users but without using words and without using many signs they at least in the 18th century they tried to embed the instructions for how to decode it into the piece itself and in the case of the c minor partita i have found that if you accept certain conditions for the tempo you can keep the beat going from the opening section to the arioso section in the middle to this kind of um, presto conclusion you can keep the same beat going through the entire thing but it's that beat in the in the last section it's a quarter note in the middle section it's an eighth note and that same beat in the opening is a 16th note mm -hmm. and that makes this the opening incredibly slow but if you look at the tempo marking grave adagio it's i believe the only time in bach's entire compositional career where he actually uses that tempo marking grave adagio and um, and i think he's trying to say something with that as well and uh, so that's why i try to figure out how to make the opening work at an exceptionally slow tempo and just to give you an insight about how i do that i basically put a kind of heavy metal uh, 16th note pulse into my mind so if the piece is in a pyam patam tatam what's going on in my mind and the way i prepare to play that is by going bum 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 and so i get that kind of heavy metal kind of uh, beat going in my mind and get it really charged up and then i try to play the piece on top of that and that what that does is it provides enough rhythmic intensity that i can control the 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 uh, musical tension during this extremely slow tempo very interesting very interesting <laughs> um i want to ask everyone who's on this uh, show the same uh, question, which is, how would you explain to a child what the artifugue is? What I, my spontaneous answer would be, I would say, uh, I would ask the child to look at an egg, and then ask the child, what could this egg turn into? And then maybe spend them uh, take a book of of a bird book, and then look at all the different birds. Uh, that an egg could turn into, or maybe even add dinosaurs and lizards and whatnot, you know, egg-laying creatures in there, and basically try to explain to the child that an egg can turn into all of those things. And that what Bach did was compose a piece where this theme, which is like an egg in its nature, has all of this possibility for developing into um, and expressing itself in any number of, of um, ways. And it really is, you could say possibly the most glorious example that we have in music of somebody trying to do that. That's, that's beautiful. I wonder how long Bach was searching for this egg. Um, it seems like he might have been searching for it for, for quite some time. I mean, every time I begin the Art of Fugue, I sort of want to play... 
<laughs> you know, I just, I, 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 I can't help but see, I, I suppose, the two ends of his career as, as being, you know, thinking, what, what is this universal theme? What is this egg? Yeah, um, that's the B minor fugue from, uh, remind me what the BWV number is on that. Oh, gosh, the BWV, uh, it's like 964, I was going to say, nine, the, the, yeah. It's, yeah, the D major sonata. It, yeah, I, I see. Yeah, it's a D major sonata, 963, right? 63, okay. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, when I was studying uh, music in Holland in the uh, early 70s, my music theory teacher was, well, first of all, you have to understand that if you study music or studied music in Holland in that period, uh, music for, for the Dutch music history was about the... Five uh, Nederlandse Scholen, which are the 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 basically for them Dutch music in this in the fifteenth and sixteenth century was the the high point of musical culture, and after after that, because it wasn't Dutch, it was kind of downhill from there. <laughs> and um, part of that, um, you could say, orientation is that uh, uh, that they were very much interested in um, understanding music from a Renaissance point of view, at least my music theory teacher was. And so he talked a lot about hexachords. And in fact, the which, and basically the hexachord is the foundation for those listeners. The hexachord is the kind of the, the music theoretical foundation for the composition of music in the 15th and 16th century, especially the uh, later 15th and 16th century. And the... Um, uh, and there, the hexachord is is a kind of scale-like figure, but that has three forms. And what you see are in a lot of of fugue themes is that the hex, hexachord is um, um, is governing how the theme is designed. I'm just thinking of um, the F sharp. Uh, uh, is it no? Is it is it the D sharp minor from book one? Bom, bom, yes. Da, 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 that's a, yeah. So so that's that's uh, a, a hexachord theme, and uh, in a sense, in the, what the Art of Fugue theme does is it combines two of the hexachords, or at least it combines two forms of the minor hexachord. One where it goes up to the high B flat, and the other where it goes down to the low C sharp. Uh, and so it's the sec- it's the it's the D minor hexachord with with its leading tone from below and with the B flat going down to the A from above, and uh, I th- the fact that it's a mirror like that I think opened up certain possibilities. But there's no doubt that Bach would have been studying and pondering um, what could be done with a theme like that probably for decades before he actually composed it. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Well, the, the hexachord, I, would you call the first fugue from the Well Tempered Clavier a uh, hexachord? I mean, it uses. Yeah. yeah so uh, it uses the natural. Yeah. I think. Well, tell me what you think about this. My theory about the Well Tempered Clavier was that uh, he says, you know, we, we have a fugue subject that has uh, six notes. Uh, and then halfway through the book, he begins the F minor uh, fugue, which then all of a sudden has nine of the 12 notes. And then by the time you're at the ultimate fugue, you have 12 of the 12 notes. And so he's sort of blowing out this um, hexachord into its its full uh, theoretical possibility. Mm-hmm. Is that your idea? 
I probably cannot take full credit for it. I, I think it's it's certainly been written about, especially the F minor. Well, there's no question that you know the first fugue is six notes and the last one is 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 twelve. Yeah, the that's that's true. That's very true. Um, uh, but it's a it's a really it's a very elegant idea. Um, uh, the it does kind of beg the question of when these pieces were composed. Uh, because some of them were composed probably earlier than others, and others were transposed from other keys. That's quite clear, also. Um, oh, which which um, which ones in the first book were transposed from from other keys? Well, I don't mean to put uh, you on the spot, but <laughs> yeah, there's. I, I think it, the question is: Do we have what evidence do we have for them being transposed? And in general, you could say the evidence is inconclusive, uh, but. Um, What's very interesting, uh, somebody about 15 years ago gave me a set of photocopies with transpositions of many of the fugues, or, uh, especially, that are in, you could say, more extreme keys, transposed up or down a half step, and then they become very ordinary keys. And I found that quite compelling because these pieces in their, you could say, more conventional key area look very conventional. And... So I think that the possibility that Bach was writing them originally in one key and then for the purposes of his project transposing them is quite conceivable. Again, it's, it's really hard to prove anything. But that's part of the fun, isn't it? Well, I, I just have a few you know, questions to wind down. Um, you've been really very generous with your time and it's been a great... Well, this has been my pleasure. <laughs> a great pleasure talking to you. Um, so the first, the first one is a confession. I confess... <laughs> That uh, that I do not love the capriccio in E major. C- can you can you dissuade me of this uh, notion? Well, first we'd have to uh, do a kind of Freudian analysis of why do you not love the E major capriccio? <laughs> it's 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 very hard to play. It's very awkward. Uh-huh. It's extremely awkward, and I think that that uh, you know um, Bach himself. Um, had a technique which rose above any kind of limitations caused by the awkwardness of the text he was playing. Um, And it's a characteristic of his early keyboard music that it's a lot more awkward to play than his later music. I think that he realized that just because he could play something and it didn't matter how awkward it was didn't mean that other people would do as good a job. And so he set about trying to write music that was actually quite easy to play. I mean, people complain about how hard Bach is to play, but I think Bach is in, Bach's music, considering how contrapuntal it is, is unbelievably well written to be easily playable. And the more one adapts itself, oneself to the needs of the text, the easier they get. So for me, for example, the Art of Fugue is one of Bach's easiest pieces to play. Huh. I feel like I could I could basically perform it in two days. I would just need to sit down and read it through about three times, and then I would feel okay with performing it. It's that well written, whereas you know the partitas I would want to practice for a couple of weeks before I uh, tried to bring them on stage. Um, but um, and the, the Goldbergs I'd want three weeks, at least, um, to get myself ready to do it again. But the Art of Fugue is just so it's like butter into the fingers if you understand how to play it, and that's again a strong argument for it being a harpsichord piece. That it's just so extremely well written um but these early pieces like the capriccio are just not that way at all they're very very thorny and so perhaps your 
objections to it arise from the the, tech, the, the fact that the technique required to play it is something that um, is a is a barrier. What books are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? You're embarrassing me. Um, <laughs> it's okay. So you can embarrass me. It's I, it's all right. Um, basically, I I um, uh, what I, I don't actually read real just genuine books a lot what i do is i kind of harvest pdfs and then kind of scan them for stimulation things that that are that that i find for example i mean basically that's one of the wonderful things about having internet and having a just this astounding resource available to everybody on the planet basically um, is that uh, you know whatever subject you want you there's there's a ton of information about it and uh, one of the my favorite subjects at the moment is um, the, the what's called partimento which is it, it's an it's an Italian uh, technique of teaching improvisation but also teaching music theory um, in the 18th century and especially around Naples and um, Part the understanding of what partimento is and how to uh, use it in a pedagogical context and what it involves for um, musicians is, I think, hugely important for our understanding of 18th century music and has completely changed the way I go about learning pieces. Because um, now what I try to do is I try to reconstruct something like a partimento for every piece that I play because I find that it accelerates my access to the uh, to the structure and 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 intention compositional intention of the piece just exponentially it just shortens the process from days to hours huh. and um, and so and the more you practice it that this particular practice of of a kind of reduction the the better you get at it and so the more fun it gets do you think we could get the those PDFs or some of those PDFs available to to some of the listeners? This is this compositional reduction technique that you've got on YouTube. Yes, it's called Partimento. Okay. Yes. Yeah, there's there are are various websites that uh, focus on uh, on uh, present the presentation of Partimento, and I'll 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 look for them and send you a link to them. Okay, wonderful. Do you have any favorite comedians? I have to confess that my current absolute favorite is Randy Rainbow. I would rec- recommend Randy Rainbow to anybody if they want therapy for the current situation. Because uh, have you seen them? No. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. Okay, he's a he's a YouTube comedian, and uh, what he's developed is an amazing art form, where he it's sort of like a recitative and aria. He has a really good music theater voice, and so he does these imaginary interviews with people from the current administration, and then goes into, and that's the recitative part, and then goes into usually a parody of something from a musical, where he takes the subject that they that he interviewed them about, and then and then tries to expose certain, you could say, uh, ethical lapses in their. Um, in what he perceives as their judgment, uh, and does it, but he does it in such a, an incredibly visual and musical, clever way that it's 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 he's de- he's basically developed a high art form that I think will will become classical when it finally when people finally realize how brilliant he is. And uh, finally, just some advice. Could you offer advice to your former self? Oh dear, 
Now you're really exposing me. Um, basically, if you want my my most spontaneous answer, it would be keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> because I've managed to uh, um, uh, disingratiate uh, more relationships, I mean, people in more relationships than I care to admit by having been too forward about my opinions. Just, but you can't, you can't take it back. You know, once it's done, it's done. There's that wonderful quote. I forget uh, who said it, but may the bridges you burn light your way. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah. Oh, but you know, I, the way I see it is that everybody um, spends their life becoming who they are, and uh, part of that is accepting the consequences of your misbehavior because that's also part of who you are. And um, I just have to live with it and make the best of it. <laughs> Finally, one, one thing. Advice for someone who's sort of up against this historic practice versus modern piano, a musician, a Bachian, a young musician. What, what, what do you say to them? They say, Robert Hill, I want some advice. I think that the important thing to understand is that the real value of historical performance practice uh, and this has been something I've tried to put into practice throughout my whole teaching career, the real value is not recovering 18th century performance practice. The real value is in restoring to modern performance practice an understanding of the connection between music theory and decision-making and performance. Because that connection between how, uh, how you understand the the, the structure of the music and how you, what, what you decide to do is the essence of what historical performance practice actually is, much more important than details of articulation and the things that tend, people tend to associate it. It really is about this kind of interlinking of the two aspects of music theory and, and, and decision-making and performance. You know, and, and the harpsichord, the harpsichordist is the you could say the perfect proponent of this way of thinking because as a continual player you're constantly um, using your understanding of music theory to to create a musical structure out of nothing out of your imagination and so your your whole job is to make music theory come to life as it were that's the job of the continual player and um, and so we're the ones that are the best positioned to advance the idea that the, the contribution of historical performance practice is the integration of music theory understanding to musical decision making. And uh, I think that uh, that's an extremely honorable and, and uh, admirable purpose. And if somebody were to ask me why, did, why study historical performance practice, it would be for that reason, not necessarily to, to play um, at 4.15 and play the harpsichord, but to understand the benefit that you get for in, in your, let's say, a pianist in approaching any kind of music, but with an understanding of the how the composers were thinking and how those thought processes inure to the decisions that the performer makes. I think there's plenty for people to study uh, from what you've said for, for years, so I just want to thank you for being here and thank you so much. It was a great pleasure, Evan, and anytime. And good luck with your projects. Admire that. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Now, we discussed a lot of stuff, so it's all there in the episode description. Every musician mentioned, every piece mentioned is either there or in the Spotify playlist from this episode, which is also linked to in the description. Now, as for pulling sounds out of the imagined world, I think 
next episode on the seventh contrapuntus we are going to practice that we are going to turn these listeners of this podcast into world-class musicians so thank you everyone who made this episode possible thank you robert hill for being generous with your time thank you gabby for the color commentary and thank you most of all to you the listeners you are listening to the wtf bach podcast we are a brand new podcast and we want to hear from you got suggestions you want a specific piece of bach analyzed by evan just for you you can write to us you want to partner with us Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTF Bach. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. Find the links in the episode description. What a, what a great, great day, day to be listening to WTF Bach. Thank you for listening. Listen, listen, listening.